My name is Paul Cho. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Village. Um, today's passage is from Book of Acts, chapter 9, verse 1 through 20. And this morning we have the privilege of having Matthew, Youngso, and Taylor uh, read the scripture for us. So it's from Acts, chapter 9, verse 1 through 20. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saura, Saura, de goe daru pipa kanunya. Quien eres, Señor? El dijo. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Then Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananiaya, 주님 여기 있습니다. Levántate y ve a la calle llamada Recta, le dijo el Señor, a la casa de Judas y pide un hombre de Tarso llamado Saulo, ya que él está rezando allí. En una visión ha visto a un hombre llamado Ananías entrar y poner sus manos sobre él para que pueda recuperar la vista. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Vamos, porque este hombre es mi instrumento elegido para llevar mi nombre a los gentiles, reyes y los israelitas. Le mostraré cuánto debe sufrir por mi nombre. So Ananias left and entered the house. Then he placed his hands on him and said, 형제 사울이여, 그대가 오는 도중에 그대에게 나타나신 주 예수께서 나를 보내셨소. 그것은 그대가 시력을 회복하고 성령으로 충만하게 되도록 하시려는 것이오. At once, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some days. Immediately, he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. 예수가 하나님의 아들이시다. Él es el Hijo de Dios. Amen. Can we thank uh, our students? Thank you for reading this important and significant passage of the scripture. It was a very clear uh, reading. And I pray that the spirit of the living God uh, who worked in Saul's life 2,000 years ago on the road to Damascus will also work and minister uh, within your and our lives by making this scriptural message and its intents come alive in your lives in this hour and in the days ahead. Amen? Amen. From time to time, we, every one of us here in this room, experience a sense of vanity. 살다가 이따금씩 우리는 삶에 허망감을 느끼고는 합니다. Vanity. How would you describe it? Vanity. A sense of emptiness in life. Emptiness here in the chest, like you, you, you feel it literally, like physically sometimes. Aching pain, something like uh, jalidity or coldness in heart. 
lonesomeness, maybe, feeling as if I'm left alone and I'm really nothing in this vast universe. 46.5 billion light years big universe. And who am I in this tiny little life, which is like a vapor in the wind, feeling as if and questioning if everything in my life is meaningful or meaningless. Yes, there are hardships in life even now that you need to take care of, sufferings, uncontrollable situations and tragedies in life. Yes, we may feel such a vanity in those difficult times when there seems to be no answer and solution. But an interesting thing is that we also feel this sense of vanity and emptiness even in peaceful days, even when everything seems to be okay. Now, some of us are students and some of us have full-time jobs, employees, volunteers have nonprofits, small businesses, professionals. Some of us are looking for jobs and some of us are retired and some of us are housemakers and some of us are parents, some of us are singles. We have various life contexts, but here's one thing in common in all of us. Sometimes, or at some points of our lives, we try to and will need to make sense of what we do and why we do what we are doing. You know, trying to find meanings out of our life and out of our daily activities. Let me say this once more. We try to and will need to make sense of what we do and why we do what we are doing, trying to find meanings out of our life and our daily activities. Perhaps after a long, busy, exhausting day from your work, on your way back home, at the airport or in your car, you might be thinking, ah, what is this all about? Why do I need to keep living like this, busy and exhausting? Is this for money, for survival, for whom? Yes, I love what I do. I do love what I do, and I appreciate this opportunity. But is this it? What is my life really about? He was born, he worked, and he died. Would that be on my gravestone? When you become empty-nested with all of your kids gone and you are sitting in your living room by yourself, perhaps a nicely decorated room with flowers so neat and calm with sunshine coming in through the windows, isn't everything just perfect? But still, you might be thinking, now what? Now what? What do I need to do now? What is my life about? Not, as a, not just as a parent or as a wife, but as a person, as a being, as a human being. What is my life about? And there are times when we are inevitably faced with physical limitations or sudden transitions or downfalls in life. Unexpected terminal illness, menopause, aging. You may recall the emotional shock that you had when you first discovered lots of white hairs on your head? <laughs> Am I aging? Are there less days to live than the days already lived? There are those days you really, really feel 
the reality of death, that it's really coming. What do you feel on those days? Fulfilled and excited? Or some kind of vanity and emptiness? Fear? Perhaps with little kids, parents with little kids, I'm sure you are all enjoying parenting. (laughs) But in one sense, are you not exhausted and questioning what your life is about? Are you not questioning where is my life type of questions? Are you not frustrated by your inability to be nice and gentle, eventually discovering who you really are? Are you not questioning about your mental health and worried about depressions and bipolar symptoms that are evident in your life? Oftentimes, we are too busy to think about those elegant questions like, what is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of my life? Why do I need to live in this way? And why do I need to do what, I, what I'm doing now? And so forth. But between whiles at all times, these unanswered questions invade our hearts and mind in a form of vanity and emptiness. The reason we experience such a vanity and emptiness is because we, our souls and bodies, are intrinsically seeking for an answer for the yet unanswered question of who am I? Who am I? Who am I in this vast universe, in this 46.5 billion light years big universe, in this long history of the planet and the mankind, as just one inhabitant among the 7 billion people, and as just one of the millions of billions of creatures on this planet, as of now, what am I, this tiny little life, Vapor in the wind. Don't we feel our existence being so small and just like a one drop of water in the vast ocean? Have you ever not experienced such a vanity and emptiness? What has been your answer to the question, who am I? The simple question, who am I? Does what you do, namely your career, your work, your achievement, explain who you are? Like, oh, I'm an engineer, or I'm a businessman, I'm a teacher, I'm a pastor. Yes, it is a part of who you are and my identity. And what if we retired? What if we lost our job? Don't we come back to this original question once again, who am I? I'm surprised as one of the same inhabitants on this planet and in this societal culture to see how often we try to explain our identity, the who am I question, by telling what we do for work, what we have in our bank, and how much we have in our bank and in our 401k, meaning our social status, what degrees we have, namely the educational background, the achievement we've made. You know, we try to explain ourselves with those decorations, We try to make sense of our existence, our ontology, and our worth, our value, out of those secular values and paradigms. Yes, they are parts of us, no reason to deny them, nor downplay them. But the question is, is that it? Is that everything about me? Is that ultimately about who we are? 
In this productivity-oriented and efficiency-oriented culture, is my life still worth living if I didn't contribute much to the society? Is my life worth to be evaluated by the outputs of my life? Better performance, better life to be worth living? Is that the way we think and is that why we are afraid of having a dementia or living too long without a work or hobby? Is our lives worth evaluated by the functions that we make? If not, how would you make sense of the question, who am I? What am I worth? Why am I living and what am I living for? When we consider Acts 9, this so-called conversion story of Saul, perhaps we have tended to read this story as Saul's story of religious conversion, namely conversion from Judaism to Christianity, a religious conversion. But I suspect that may just be too simplified understanding of this profound story of what really happened in a person's life. What happened on the way to Damascus was not just that Saul found out that, that Jesus is real, that he really resurrected, so Saul converted to Christianity. No, it's not that simple and easy. Saul, through this experience, this life experience, found his key to the answers to the question of who am I? Saul, through this experience, found his key to the answers of this profound question of who am I in light of that Jesus is real, that what the resurrected and living Jesus is up to, and third, what he, Saul, can do in his own life alongside the life of the resurrected Lord Jesus. In other words, this experience, this encountering experience with the living Jesus gave Saul the key to understandings about who he is, namely his identity, and what his life should be really about, meaning meaning of life, purpose of life. In light of seeing the spiritual reality that Jesus is real, realizing the mission and work of Jesus, what the resurrected and living King Jesus is up to in this very world here and now, in this time and space, and third, making sense of his own direction of life, reorienting his direction of life, what, what soul can do alongside the life of resurrected King Jesus living in relationship with this King Jesus. That is what conversion is really about. Conversion, regeneration, or being born again, if you prefer using Jesus' expression to Nicodemus. Turning to Christ, conversion. And what do we mean by turning to Christ? Changing of a religious affiliation? intellectually agreeing with some of the historical facts and the doctrinal claims of Christianity? No, what conversion meant in the first century early church was to find hope in Jesus. Finding hope in Jesus. Finding hope of life. Finding meaning of life. 
purpose of life, knowing who I am and what I should live for in relationship with Jesus, this resurrected Jesus, making sense of what I am and what I do, knowing the worth of my daily activities, these everyday stuffs, reorienting and reprioritizing my daily life in light of who Jesus is, what he's up to, and how I could relate to him with my everyday stuffs. Denying the false hopes that the world, the empire, are promising, finding out the hope in a hopeless world. So this sinful world is broken and messy, but despite the reality, choosing to see a deeper reality, choosing to find hope in Jesus, and choosing to live in accordance to the, to the hope that Jesus proposes, that is conversion. That is what happened in Acts 9. Perhaps we have long been misunderstanding and perhaps misled about what a conversion is and what Christianity is about. I, I shared this a few years ago, but feel the need to say this once again. I was so convinced when I read the following from John Stott in his book, Your Confirmation. Here John Stott states some of the typical misunderstandings about Christian life. He says, Christianity is not simply a creed that is simply believing the things that Jesus taught, namely the Christian truth, the doctrines. What makes us Christians? It's not about creeds that we agree and believe. Beliefs about Jesus being the Son of God dying on the cross on our behalf. Beliefs about God's creation as opposed to the evolutionary origin. Beliefs about Jesus coming back to the earth to judge the world. Important this must be simply agreeing and believing in Christian doctrines do not make us Christians. Yes, we believe in the Apostles' Creed and some catechisms, but that doesn't automatically make us Christians. James says in his epistle, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe. Christianity is not simply about what we believe and sometimes even whether we believe. Second, Stott says, Christianity is not simply a code of conduct, namely ethics, living a good life or behaviors. It's not simply about being a good person, trying to live a moral life, or trying to follow the Ten Commandments or the lifestyle of the Sermon on the Mount. Important they must be. This doesn't make us Christians. Third, Stott says Christianity is not simply about a cult, meaning a ritual, a religious activity. Even if we participate in worship services every single weekend like today, that does not automatically make us Christians. Even if we were baptized, that doesn't automatically make us a person belonged to Christ. Not a creed, not a code of conduct, not a cult. And strikingly, Stott says the following, moreover, Christianity is not about a well-balanced combination of those three altogether. Meaning, even if we believe in firm Christian doctrine, the orthodox truth, 
and live a moral life according to the Bible and participate faithfully in Christian worship services and activities, we still may not be Christians. Wow. Striking. Aren't you, are you not scared? Are you okay? Then what makes us Christian? Stoss says, Christianity is not about creed, code of conduct, nor cult, but it's about Christ. It's about Christ, the person of Christ, the living Christ, the resurrected Christ, how we are being related to him here and now in ordinary stuff of everyday life. It's about finding hope of life in our relationship with Jesus. In the, in the midst of the very ordinary things and stuffs of life that we face every day. And I think he was a longtime chaplain of the Senate, Richard Harverson, who said the following when he was illustrating the essence of Christianity. In the beginning, the church was about a fellowship of men and women centering on and around the living Christ. Then the church moved to Greece where it became an idea, a good idea, a good philosophy. Then it moved to Rome, where it became an institution. Next, it moved to Europe, where it became a culture. And finally, it moved to America, where it became an enterprise. I, I think he's right. Perhaps we have made a Christianity which blinded people so that despite the fact that we don't feel our relationship with Jesus to be real and authentic and alive, and despite the fact that we don't reorient our lives alongside the mission and work of Jesus, we still feel okay and assured of our faith and salvation, claiming to be His disciples and faithful children, beloved children, as long as we check in on Sunday services and participate in some religious activities that the church asks us to do. What do we mean by having a genuine relationship with Jesus? I think we may have been naive by hearing from some evangelists in the past who said, if you pray the sinner's prayer, you will be saved. So we may have followed the sinner's prayer following after the pastor or evangelist. Then the pastor said to us, now it's all done. Your soul is forever saved and Jesus is in your heart now. Parenthesis, no matter how you live from now on. Really? Is this what Jesus really said? Pray the sinner's prayer and then it's all done? and I'm automatically registered as his kingdom person and his disciple. No, this kind of presentation of the gospel is making the costly gospel of Jesus Christ to be a cheap grace, says Bonhoeffer. Remember what Jesus really said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and herself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Having a relationship with Jesus, following after Jesus, is a costly discipleship. Jesus did not say, if anyone would come after me, just pray the sinner's prayer. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. 
if anyone wants to follow after me. That's the Christian call, a Christian discipleship, a way to be a disciple of Jesus, a way to be converted, reorienting your life towards Christ. Conversion. And at this point, I humbly must ask this question to each one of us. Are you converted? Are you converted? Are you really converted to Christ? Are you really a disciple of Jesus? Are you a Christ, Christian, meaning Christian, little Christ? Perhaps for so long, we, have may, we may have misunderstood the concept of conversion. What is conversion? It's about finding your new identity in Jesus, finding the meaning of life, the purpose of life in Christ. By seeing the spiritual reality that Jesus is real and is your Lord and King, just like what Saul experienced on his road to Damascus, seeing the spiritual reality that Jesus is real and is his Lord, and realizing the mission and work of Jesus here and now in the midst of your life, your very life, and in the midst of today's world, and then reorienting your own life's direction in accordance to what Jesus is up to. This reorientation is called conversion. Then what is a church? A church is a community of believers who are converted to Jesus Christ. That is how the Christian movement first began in the first century. I was amazed by looking at these estimates uh, of Christian population for the first few centuries, estimated by religious sociologists. By the year 40 AD, there were about 1,000 Christians in the whole Roman Empire, which was only about 0.0017% of the population. You know, there were 3,000 baptisms on the day of Pentecost, but as soon as the persecution started, it seems the number dropped down immediately. However, what is fascinating is that according to religious sociologists and historians, Christianity grew at an average rate of 40% per decade until the 4th century. 40% per every decade, every 10 years. Isn't that amazing? 40% average growth rate per decade for 300 years. And it eventually grew to nearly 10% of the whole Roman Empire's population by the year 300 AD. But consider the surrounding environment. It's a period when there were severe persecutions from Judaism in the beginning and then from the Roman Empire. Christianity was illegal and the churches only met in secret. Christians, Christians had to lose their jobs. They literally lost their jobs because of their faith and some of them had to become slaves or be killed at the Colosseum. Being a Christian could cost you your head. Christianity was scorned, despised, persecuted, but it grew, grew rapidly. Why? Why what, what do you think the reason was? 
The reason is that it was attractive. It was attractive, according to Alan Crater, a church historian. Those lives of converted Christians, they looked challenging, but they looked right and attractive, reflecting hope in their faith, even in the midst of persecutions, blessing the enemies, even in the midst of being mocked, rejoicing even in the midst of their sacrifices, living as if there were hope even in dark times. So they said, strangely attractive. Yes, it was the work of the Spirit who moved in the early church and the people's lives. They wanted to follow Jesus, even though that meant sacrifice and potential losing of their lives, because they believed that it is worth living and dying Four, the early Christians found their identity and meaning of life and purpose of life in Jesus Christ. They saw hope in Him. They believed that Jesus is real and alive, working even above the dark authority of the Roman Empire, and then reoriented their lives in accordance to their trust in the sovereignty of Jesus. There were no evangelism programs in the early church. There were no Sunday school programs or no child cares in the early church. The messages of the gospel were proclaimed by the transformed lives of the converted Christians, compelled by the love of Christ, strengthened by the work of the Spirit, the empowering presence of the Spirit. So the church grew at a rate of 40% per decade for the first 300 years. And please let me share just one example of what the early church was like. Just like coronavirus, which is threatening the world at the moment, there have been numerous occasions of epidemics throughout the history of the mankind. And the early church times was no exception to that. It must have been more threatening back in those days without penicillin. And I think it was the plague of Cyprian which swept through the Roman Empire in the mid-third century. Historians say that at the height of the outbreak of the epidemic, which was similar to Ebola virus from a few years ago, about 5,000 people a day were said to be dying in Rome. Just a century prior to this plague of Cyprian, There was a previous epidemic which resulted in one-third of the empire's population dead. And on this second outbreak, so this second outbreak must have been a dreadful and traumatic threat to every civilian. How did you think Christians reacted, react to this epidemic? How do you imagine the early church the converted Christians responded to this dreadful threat. At the height of the second epidemic, around 260 AD, the bishop Dionysius wrote a lengthy tribute to the efforts of local Christians, many of whom lost their lives while caring for others. So reading from Eusebius, a church historian in the third and fourth centuries, Most of our brother Christians showed unbound love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. 
Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and caring for others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of presbyters, deacons, and lay people winning high commendation so that death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith, seems in every way the equal to martyrdom. But the heathen behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest throwing them into the rows before they were dead and threatening, treating unburied corpse as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and the contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. Can you believe this? How would this be ever possible? Like, who, who were these people? These were the people who found their identities, meaning of life, and purpose of life in Jesus Christ. Yes, they have, must have been afraid of death, of course, just like everybody else, but at the same time, they were not afraid of death because they knew who is in charge of the situation. Neither death nor life will be able to separate them from the love of Christ. Seeing the truer reality of what is out there, they also realize that it is the mission of Jesus and it is at the heart of Jesus that he wants to take care of the sick and the lost. They looked for Jesus and found Jesus in the midst of epidemics and the darkness. When everybody was seeing darkness, they saw light in the midst, which is Jesus still living and working in the darkness. So they reoriented the direction of their lives, chose to walk towards the sick and to die with them. They were lost in disease, but found in Jesus. That was the early church, a meaning of conversion in the early church. But what happens next in the year of 313 AD? Edict of Milan. Constantine becomes the first Christian emperor, and this ends the so-called period of the early church and opens up a new era of Christianity in the Roman Empire, namely a Christendom, a Christian world where Christianity gets the hegemony. Christianity was no longer a religion of periphery, but came to the very center of the imperialistic and political power and authority. So if you look at the table once again, the number of Christians grew from 10% to 56% of the whole population of the empire in just a couple of decades, from year 300 to year 350 AD. Why? It's not because it was attractive anymore, but it's largely because it suddenly became advantageous to be a Christian in the empire. 
Suddenly, it was advantageous to be a Christian. You get something from this uh, commitment. It was a way to get ahead in politics. It was a way to be accepted in a polite society. So the number grew exponentially for this institutionalized religion. And eventually, in the year of 380 AD, the new emperor Theodosius declares that Christianity to be the, to be the established religion of the state, meaning the only legal religion. All buildings of other religions were smashed. Force was used to, com- to compel people to convert and participate in this only legal religion. So people became Christians by compersion backed up by violence in this new era of Christendom Christianity. Attraction, then advantage, then compersion. The reason we look back at the history is not just to know the past, what happened in the past, but to explain the present. The three concepts of conversions, the three motivations of conversions, still exist in today's church. Conversion by attraction of the gospel. Conversion by seeing the advantage. Conversion by compersion. Are you signing up for a membership in the early church or for a membership in the institutionalized religion? Are you coming to church on Sunday mornings like today because it's advantageous for you to be in this place as a religious consumer? Are you here because you are coerced to be so? Beloved brothers and sisters, I pray that this happens to your soul and your spirit. I pray that you find your very identity, meaning of life, and purpose of life from nothing else but in Jesus Christ. I pray that you see the spiritual reality that Jesus is real and that he bore all of your sins and forgave and accepted you and that he is in full control of the situation that you are in right now. That's the spiritual reality. I pray that you realize that you were made for his purposes and you are breathing for his glory even now. No matter how you feel about your your worth, your life, whether you're worthy to be loved, you are being loved by Jesus. You are breathing for his glory. You know, when, when we think about purposes, a purpose of life, we tend to think that there is one single purpose, like a mission to be achieved in, through this life, that we need to find out what mine is about, like what is my purpose. But not really. Our identity and our purposes of, of life often change over the seasons of life. Just like there's a season for everything, a time to keep, a time to throw away, a time to be silent, a time to speak, a time to be born, and time to die, says Ecclesiastes. As our life situations change, the meaning of life and purpose of life 
also change from season to season. The only and the ultimate purpose of life that doesn't change is that we walk with Christ through every season of life. Along the companionship, we will find various purposes that He achieves through our life. It is this dynamic tension, this dynamic tension with Jesus we have with the living Jesus, which defines our identity and meaning and purpose of life. This dynamic tension. Even mature Christians will keep asking Jesus this question. Who am I in this changing season? What do I need to do? What do you want me to do? What meaning should I find from this new situation? We will keep asking these questions along the seasons of life. And we will find some answers along the way, but not all answers. You know, Christians do not live with all the answers. There are so many things that are not yet answered. But we live with right questions. We live with right questions and a right person to ask the questions. We live with certain ambiguities. There are ambiguities still remaining in Christian's life. Many unanswered questions and inquiries yet. But it's okay. It's okay to live with ambiguities because we do know that someone's in control and that he's holding your hands. Living in this dynamic tension, living in this constant dialogue with living Jesus defines who you are constantly and how we would make meanings out of this messy life. So let me come back to this original question. Who are you? Who are you? How would you answer? And why are you doing what you are doing now? May the Spirit of the living God enlighten you like He did to Saul so that you find your answers through your relationship with Jesus. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the hope of our life. Thank you for being the Lord, King, Redeemer, and Sustainer of our life. We know you are always there for us. Lord, only you can define us. And you can help us to know who we are. So help us to know who we are in your eyes through the seasons of life. Help us to see where you are and what you are doing in our life and in this world. Send your spirit to us. Let the spirit be the best friend and the leader of our soul. In your name we pray. Amen.